Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 DevOps Lunch and Learn. The May the 4th DevOps Lunch and Learn was about VMware, and we went deep into setting up and the challenges around building VMware clusters. Um, this was the RackEnd teams um, sort of going into it deeply about all the challenges and how it works and what you have to do and think about. Um, and there's a lot of detailed information in this. So if you're interested in VMware, you will get a lot out of this. And if you are just interested in hearing how hard it is to build clusters on bare metal infrastructure, you will also learn quite a bit. Enjoy. Uh, I, I did have a plan to talk about VMware, and so we we do have. Uh, I, I would stick. I, I would jump us back to that. Did y'all want to talk about open positions first? I'm happy to to go to have have people. If you have if you have open positions, it's always useful. To take a minute and say what they are. And, and sure, you know, thank you. Get, um, get help. I'll I'll take the mic if you don't mind. Hi, I am Jeet. Uh, I am the head of. Post sales, customer facing, partner facing engineering at Kentech. Uh, we have a couple positions open, um, different levels of urgency. Um, <laughs> my team in particular, it is uh, PE level network engineers, but network engineers across backbone, ISPs, CDNs, um, getting into the cloud as well, doing a launch on AWS. Um, Essentially, it's an observability stack. So the base primitives that you gather from Nephilim data, but also uh, device telemetry like SNMP, um, stitching and marrying that all together. But once you get into the public cloud space, we're talking about synthetics as well. Things that your regular IP, Nephilim, SNMP device data will not capture is latency, performance, and jitter, which are very high metrics, um, high value metrics for application stacks. So getting as close as you can to APM, um, but staying confined within the network realm of APN. Uh, so network plays a big part in microservices, service meshes as well, with the network proxies too. Um, so covering the full stack from ISPs, full observability stack from ISPs, CDNs into the public clouds. Couple positions open. PE, ideally, somebody that has enough of a CDN overlay understanding, but has built environments, complex environments in AWS. Very suitable, but those are the client partner facing. But I have a few platform engineering spots as well. Um, we have a couple cluster, EU cluster, and the US cluster. It's essentially observability, essentially a big data analytics problem. It's marrying all these signals, logs, metrics, events, traces, um, and gathering all of them together and deriving context out of this. Uh, so it is a big data analytics platform. Backend platform is all PostgreSQL, um, varying degrees of front-end technologies, agents built with Rust. Um, so a few spots. I can um, put the URL in the chat window. And I'll put my email address there as well. Please reach out. Really could use some talent and there is a dearth. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. So just to be clear, when you're, yeah. when you're talking about that stuff, are you looking for the, the data science gathering, analyzing? Are you looking for the instrumentation piece to it? Um, yeah, we have we have all all positions. Um, here's here's the URL for the posting. Um, so we are increasing headcount in Q2, Q3. Um, on the back end, we have a back end, couple back end engineer spots open. Um, of course, there are design positions open as well, but I'm not too concerned about those right now. Um, the front end design is Prometheus Grafana, uh, the dashboard itself. Um, and a couple SDR positions too. Uh, they're not under me, but you know, I work. I'm in revenue leadership, so I work very closely with them. There's also um, a solutions engineering spot open. So this is pre-sales. I deal with post-sales uh, because it's a SaaS platform. So most of the revenue is past POC, past staging into the production environments, large logo customers, large logo clients. Company okay. itself is about five years old. I'll, I'll ping you on Slack. I think I can for you. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and I would be happy if you want to take a uh, lunch in a week or two or a couple of weeks and, and walk through the platform. Sure. Uh, it's always, yep. um, you know, happy to give feedback and, and hear what people are doing. So that's, that's something I think we can always do as a, a group. It's, it's helpful for everybody to have a sort of a safe place to say, Hey, I got this cool thing. Try to play, you know, put feedback on it. All right. Appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Reckon, Reckon has positions too. Um, for people who are interested, I, I'm interested time. I won't, I won't spend that much time on it, but um, we're looking for people who are DevOps pros and want to help other companies not spend as much time on DevOps product testing. A lot of DevOps learning. I'll put, a, I'll put a link for our stuff too. But I do. Um, anybody else have open positions? Is that what was you supposed to talk about? There? Um, um, I'll go real quick. Uh, Hey y'all, I'm Sevi. I'm usually just lurking in the background. Um, I'm at Whole Foods and we are looking for a senior DevOps engineer and then uh, we're going to be posting that in a few weeks. Uh, we're an Amazon company, so we're full AWS everything. Uh, sometimes that makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so if y'all think of anyone, just let me know. Cool. It, it'll be live. Congratulations on Whole Foods. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, yeah, on, on my end, uh, Geotab uh, is uh, is hiring for various uh, uh, positions, uh, both on the DevOps team and server ops, um, aka uh, SRE. Um, I'll, I'll I'll post the link in chat, and uh, uh, yeah, we can look at it from there. Um, so, what I VMware is its own special beast. Um, we talked about imaging a ton last week, and um, oh my god, I reckon we've been spending a lot of time um, helping people bootstrap VM and writing VMware and and, and doing integrations. And it, it came up as a as sort of a topic yesterday, and I thought we'd we'd extend it, or last week, and I thought we'd extend it this time. Um, and I, I can give some background on what we do with it. I actually have. I have a graphic, um, but if people have an area of interest or a question first, let me find my graphic in that. But does something specifically jump out at people as a topic area on VMware? Nope. Okay. So the thing that we've been spending a lot of time doing is specifically around installing VMware. Um, I'm going to have to find these slides. Um, which means Netboot, Provision, ESX. And then the place where it gets really interesting, ESX has its own Netboot, Netbooter called Weasel. Um, and then the, the thing that got really interesting for us was where we started going after that, because Customers have been asking for, I want to secure VMware, so that you need to take actions after VMware is installed. Um, there are places where the VMware doesn't have an API, and you have to log into the box and take actions for that after you get VMware and then oh, and you have to do get the RAID and BIOS set up exactly right first before you do the install, um, and then once it's installed and you start building the cluster, you have to talk to different APIs and it becomes this sort of, um, tapestry to weave to actually build up a cluster. Um, and it's worth sort of noting, noting what those tools are and, and how the process goes. Um, let me find the, the, the graphic. And Shane, do you, Shane, Shane, and Mike from our team have been doing a ton of this work um, to actually walk people through the process. Greg, uh, you too, actually, because of the universal workflow pieces. Um, I'm, I'm discussing this at a high level. Is it worth? Can one of you walk through the? While I find what the slides are, walk through the the whole process that we've we've been helping customers with. Okay. Uh, the whole. Hi, everyone. This is Shane. <laughs> the, the whole uh, process. The whole process. Um, 
I do stuff at Racken. Uh, one of the things I do is uh, one of the I'm one of the team members that develops the ESXi automation in our framework. Um, and we found that really um, deploying ESXi is kind of just one small piece to the puzzle. Uh, the larger story is uh, overall system lifecycle management. And ESXi as an OS piece on that is just really it's just a small cog in the larger machine. Um, and most of our customers, it's just the beginning point of uh, the various different VMware products or tools uh, that they consume. And, and it varies from customer to customer um, what stack of tools they're consuming, whether it's, they're just running, you know, vCenter. Uh, vCenter plus vSAN or vCenter plus vSAN plus NSXT or if they go the cloud foundation, the VCF route. And so um, we see sort of a different, a broad mix, I guess I should say, of uh, customer use cases. But it does start from that uh, cornerstone ESXi image uh, in OS deployment. But for that to even be successful, you have to kind of backstep a little bit even further, which is uh, the physical hardware underneath ESXi and the foundation of uh, that physical hardware has to be right for ESXi. I mean, at the simplest, there's, you know, the BIOS configuration of making sure that the virtualization bits are enabled or turned on. And that in itself is, can be a journey or a problem. I mean, you think about five or six machines, what no big deal. You hit the web, you know, interface for the BMC and flip some bits, boot the machine, you start scaling that to a few hundred machines or in our customers' cases, some of our customers' cases on the tens of thousands of physical machine scale. And it's a huge challenge to ensure that uh, the hardware platform foundation is in the right state. And really um, driving a machine from power on, BIOS configuration, firmware versions, hardware RAID configuration, ESXiOS install, interacting with secure boot or not, um, that's a challenge. Uh, and then being able to do a, a very deep configuration of ESXi to a hardware compatibility spec for the given end state environment that the machine's driving towards. So in the case of VCF, it's very, um, the cloud foundation is very uh, prescriptive in all of the BIOS settings, the firmware versions, RAID configuration for the vSAN components, um, and all of the ESXi OS configuration values that all have to be in place before you can even start the VCF cloud bootstrap process on top of that. So there's a huge journey just to get to that point. And if you are trying to meet a compliance spec for a given VCF version, which some of our customers do, it's very important to them that they're consuming, you know, VCF 4.2 spec or 4.21 spec or whatever it happens to be that defines ESXi version and patches and configuration and BIOS and firmware, you know, getting all of that in place, validating those things. And then, you know, going back to that foundational starting point, there's still uh, other infrastructure issues you have to deal with. Like, is the network top of rack switch set up correctly with the right VLANs? Can I ping the default gateway? Are DNS records in place? So there's a huge journey uh, that touches all of the, the aspects of your infrastructure components and pieces that we have to be able to integrate with and um, flexibly allow a customer to inject their own set of things that are important to them or things they know that's going to break in their environment. Because there's still always that put perennial push-pull struggle between the you know systems folks and the network folks in terms of uh, you know, is the network configured correctly? Of course, my network's configured correctly. What are you <laughs> questioning my network, right? And then the systems guys are, well, I can't see any of the VLANs I'm supposed to see for my VCF systems. So, you know, so we help with that sort of automation process and validation and driving to that final journey, uh, whether it's a prescribed VCF and using, you know, VCF's cloud builder to bootstrap VCF on top of ESXi where you fork in that journey and you go off and you consume different software-defined data center construct components, you know, individually instead of consuming the entire VCF spec. Um, so maybe you only want, you know, bread and peanut butter. You don't want bread, peanut butter, uh, honey, jam, and banana on your sandwich. Uh, so you can choose sort of that choice, uh, vCenter and vSAN only, if uh, and enroll all of those into data center cluster constructs. So there's a, a lot we've been doing with the, the VMware customers. We have a lot of a broad range and a diverse 
um, set of uh, customers that consume the VMware uh, components from VC, uh, vSphere and VCF, and it's driven our automation in a lot of different directions. Um, I don't know if that is what you had in mind there, Rob. Did I ramble? Oh, yep, looks like I rambled on enough for you to find what you're looking for. Yeah, I did. This is what, and I was I was flipping them while you were talking, um, because this is this is the this is that process that we've we've been going. We, you were describing, and I was flip I was flipping this the slides. I it's it's oh, interesting. I didn't know I was I, supposed to synchronize with you there. Sorry. You no, I I I did it in the background. You 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 were great. I I you start at the beginning, and then we walk through the the process because that's how it, how it goes. Um. I, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of lessons learned for this that I think are are really necessary. Or, you know, like we've, uh, you know, we we should always I'll pause for questions, but there's lessons learned that I would have the team walk through um, that are useful to 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 hear even without uh, specific questions. Always better to take questions. Um, the first, the first one was, um, <laughs> was just the idea that this, everything we've seen with VMware has sort of been, they, they designed it as a one shot install process. Um, so like VCF, you upload your whole environment and you push go and then it, it does stuff. Um, and is that, I, I know you've been doing automation outside of VCF. Uh, is that still why why do they do that and is that still still a thing like can we can we get away from like can we do one machine at a time and make it work how how do, how would that come about and I know other people on the team too if y'all have ideas i'm I'm sorry I missed the first half of what was that the, the, first the half question the question, question is is like like what we what we see a ton of is these one shot like build, rebuild the whole cluster. We have we have some customers who call it repaving, where they are just like, "Yep, time to upgrade," and you know, hundred machines go through a rebuild cycle. They they do all the work. They come back. You know, we can decompose what that is. You just described a whole bunch of it, but I mean, does it have to be a hundred well, machines at a time, or you know, a cluster at a time? Well. Well, there's kind of, there's a couple of intertwined problems there. So generally speaking, we've been relatively prescriptive and when you need new versions, re-image the system, rebuild it from scratch because you can guarantee that what you're driving towards is what you're testing in your CI, CD, dev test, whatever pipeline. Um, that process is a little bit foreign to some people because a, lo a lot of people in operations are used to the um, snowflake slash pets sort of analogy and problem where they built a thing and they care about it and they upgrade it and they update it and they patch it and they keep it running and they keep it alive and they feed it in the breakfast and they feed it at night and they clean its litter boxes, right? And so they care about these things. Um, we are a bit more, um, you know, this is the whole pets versus cattle versus sort of it, debate or the, whatever and, direction and you image, want to take it. And but, the image deployment stuff we talked about last week to an extent too, which is right. Well, yeah, image deployment ESXi is, is sort of a different thing because ESXi's installer is kind of a one-shot thing. Um, anyway. And, you know, we can do image deploy with ESXi regardless of how you get the bits on the disk. The, the process of starting from scratch uh, and building up from a known good set of profiles is more sort of a storyline. Uh, you have to decouple your workloads and what's running on the platform to be able to run that and process in that mode. And that's where a lot of times there's a lot of hesitation, you know, draining the machine, taking it out of a cluster, um, pulling the workloads off of it, shifting the workloads to something else, re-imaging the machine, and then bringing it back into the cluster. And that's going to be, that requires additional operational lift um, and integration with the vSphere and the VCF tools to do that sort of thing. But if you get to that point, you can guarantee that you can roll machines over much more quickly. And the push-pull I, I started out with in the conversation is we, you know, we run into customers who have a, a hesitancy or a pushback against that methodology because they've always run things through, I just want to patch and upgrade it. I don't want to redeploy it. And that's 
partially, you know, understandable because in their experience, deploying ESXi is a hard and painful thing. And they sweat people, you know, in a sweatshop to build ESXi hosts and so and get them just right. And so they've learned that it's painful to build ESXi. When you can apply, you know, solid automation to the process and it's just a snap of a finger, you know, change a couple parameters, uh, upload a new ISO and off to the race as you go. Um, it changes the the scenario, but it doesn't necessarily change pe you know, people's initial reactions or concerns. And so we have customers that push on the, um, we must also be able to update and be able to go from 70U1 to 70U2 with a patch update reboot process. And they don't want to do that repave process. So it's, it's a shift in thinking and, and operational workflows that are necessary to make that successful. Um, yeah, so there. <laughs> uh, part of that um, process, I guess, going back to the um, screen on the, the slide on the screen is the agent piece inside the, the ESXi component. Um, our agent piece traditionally is a Golang executable binary. We had to rebuild it in Python because ESXi you can't build Golang binaries for. Um, but that agent piece is a critical important piece for us because it, it extends uh, configuration management um, tooling inside of ESXi. And we get pushback from VMware on this all the time. They're like, you can't do that. That's not the way to do it. You must consume our APIs. You must consume our external tools to interact with. And it's like, well, first of all, we, we are the bootstrapper for the system. We have to get the addressing and the networking right. And we have to get all of that initial bootstrap pieces. But there's also um, the problem of, um, you know, bear with me. This is a far-fetched story. Um, and it, it, it's fantastical and probably not real. Or realistic, or you be the judge of that. Um, you may have a security team or a security function of some sort that dictates password policy. Okay, maybe that's not so far fetched. That's pretty much any organization over, you know, a dozen people or two dozen people or something. Uh, in the case of uh, VMware, uh, there is absolutely no tooling externally to modify the password policy standards on a core ESXi system. You must log into the DCUI shell, modify some files in the Etsy PAM uh, subsystem, and then reboot ESXi. So to be able to do that, it's a high-touch operation. And so um, our agent being inside the OS, just like any other configuration management tool that has hooks inside of an OS, we can uh, extend and embrace and be able to, to automate that path or that process, which should be a fundamental thing that you can do. Uh, through configuration of the, the platform, but you can't through any of the external APIs or CLI tools. And so um, it's, you know, our approach is often um, met with initial concern from the security perspective of being an agent inside the OS, but it also gives us a tremendous amount of capability and value. Um, one of the other values is uh, ESXi's uh, Weasel Installer uses a um, first boot mechanism where they stage a bunch of scripts inside the OS. They boot the machine. Uh, the machine boots up and runs those scripts. Um, well, that first boot uh, through Weasel process breaks UFI Secure Boot. And you cannot install uh, ESXi in UFI Secure Boot mode um, and meet Secure Boot compliance because you're ran running random scripts. And so the VMware way of doing that is you go into the BIOS, you disable UFI Secure Boot, you boot the machine into non-secure boot mode, inst mode, install ESXi, boot it into the first-time bootstrap process, let it do its first-time bootstrap configuration, reboot the machine, reconfigure the BIOS for UFI Secure Boot mode, and then reboot again to be able to um, have a secure boot system, which is an awful lot of high-touch problem there. Because we're an agent inside the OS and we're a signed agent, by VMware, um, we can then uh, do that process securely and we can do the bootstrap process uh, for UFI Secure Boot uh, and meet Secure Boot from initial power on all the way through initial configuration and into the final OS. So there's a lot of reasons that um, bucking the normal trends of consuming external APIs or services for configuring things is necessary and particularly in the ESXi case. Um, that's very much so. 
and there was a, a I, I was talking to mute and, he, and but when you when you uh started started this um what about making a cluster like adding machines to a cluster because it that's the other thing that it's it strikes me is right right now it's like single shot give me all the machines build the cluster it's it's how hard is it to add a machine to a running cluster from an automation perspective it's um it's pretty hard um because you have to sort of jump between um I hate to say this for for lack of a better word, but jump between contexts. And I say that because we have an internal um, product solution called context, which helps solve this problem. But it, it makes sense from the perspective of uh, from an That's automation context, perspective. Right? right, exactly. From an automation perspective, there's, you know, configuring and deploying a machine. That's a single unit thing. And you have a process that does its single unit thing to the machine. But when you start doing cluster construct things, um, you know, even just as simple as deploying vCenter and then uh, creating a data center construct and adding hosts, the ESXi hosts into that data center uh, in vCenter, you're now getting into a higher order orchestration problem where you have gates that come into play, like all of these two dozen ESXi hosts must finish configuring first, um, then I can deploy vCenter, or at least one of them has to finish where I'm going to deploy vCenter, deploy vCenter, but then I have to wait till they all finish so I can then add them into the uh, data center construct in vCenter. And so you have a lot of um, gating uh, operations that interrupt the flow of a workflow or a workflow or a process has to wait for certain states or stages to come into play for them to be able to do that higher order orchestration cluster construct stuff. That's the initial sort of cluster bootstrap problem. Um, but then, you know, you have to be able to hit the APIs or the services, whatever they happen to be, to then de-enroll a machine that's currently in a cluster if you want to take it out of the cluster, perform the, you know, whatever drain operations they happen to be. Um, drain the VMs off of it or in Kubernetes world, drain the containers off of it and coordinate uh, off from the cluster. And once it's then done doing its drain operation, which is another gating factor, and you might have five or six or a dozen or two dozen or however many portion of your fleet going through this process you're waiting for to drain, and then you can take control back over and, and re-image them or patch and update and reboot them and then put them back in the cluster. So there's a lot of... Um, external coordination or orchestration components that have to happen and that's where the sort of context pieces that come into play um, you know our our workflow process is by design um, done on the target machine and most of all of the heavy lifting occurs on the target machine because that allows us to parallelize things we can bring up a thousand hosts and you have a thousand hosts doing the heavy lifting work not one single orchestration piece uh, but when you get to that higher order cluster construct thing, uh, then you have to be able to shift and, and run operations that aren't on the machine anymore. And so the way we do that um, is through this context mechanism where we can take an existing workflow that's running on a target machine, shift the context to a uh, container and execute APIs against arbitrary infrastructure, whether it's executing an API against the remote target machine itself, whether it's executing against vCenter uh, for an enroll operation or a de-enroll operation, whatever that, that sort of API call is, you can then shift that workflow, take the state of that existing machine and workflow, move it over into the context, happens to be running, uh, we use containers, running in a container, execute those calls, and then return the control or return the context back to the, the running machine. Um, and it allows us to make workflows portable and sort of uh, suspend and, and resume in different places and return back to the original place. Um, extending that concept, we can also use context as sort of standalone, quote unquote, fake machines where we can execute arbitrary workflows that aren't necessarily tied to a given machine, but we're executing operations against remote infrastructure APIs sort of independently from the, any of the machines themselves. So that's where we can do things like VCF cording a machine off or Kubernetes cording a machine off that's not directly tied to a machine or uh, any number of um, sort of con you know, arbitrary standalone 
orchestration flows. Uh, but you still need to build a, a controller of some sort that manages those orchestration constructs. So when you have automation flows hopping around, uh, you're interacting with doing stuff on the machine locally, then you're jumping to doing you know remote APIs against infrastructure. It could be against the top of rack switch and enabling uh, you know port configurations on specific ports for the host after you have identified and validated and verified that you know through LLDP or CDP that you know your host is connected to the correct top rack switch and the correct ports mm -hmm. on the switch, then you get that port information and then plumb up the right VLANs for your VCF hosts, or if you're changing roles of your host to Kubernetes, replumb them for your Kubernetes VLANs or whatever the case might be. Um, being able to execute those API calls against the top rack switches in, in your workflow process becomes uh, very powerful and empowering uh, to your whole infrastructure, data center um, management lifecycle, not just your machine's lifecycle management. Yeah. So the, the, the problem here is that even something as simple as adding a machine to a cluster requires all of that check, all those works, six shared credentials. I mean, what, what you're, what you're describing is illogical to me. There's, there's, you know, VMware is not a standalone thing, especially with storage and networking in there. Um, but it's interesting until you're, you're walking through it. I don't think of just how circular the bootstrap is from that perspective, because like you, you really can't just say, Oh, here's my storage array, go attach to it. Or here's my vCenter cluster, go attach to it. You, you actually have to make all those other pieces sort of fit together. And it's not a, it's not linear. So is there like, actually, I'm saying that like a statement. That's, I should ask it like a question. Like, it seems to me like what you're describing is you start setting something up. You're like, well, here's storage, but I need to get some information before I move further on my storage. Then I need to, you know, get that information and then share it with vCenter and then come back. Like, is there a back and forth in all these pieces? Uh, absolutely. And that's, okay. yeah. So talking about the sort of, jumping the context or moving the state of the context from the machine to the um, you know, the context runner uh, in the container, uh, you have to bring it, be able to bring that state over of the current machine so you have access to it, uh, but you're always sort of amending it and updating it. So there's a couple of places where your state changes or transforms over time. There's your initial start with your configuration or profile, um, your descriptive configuration of what this things should become that plums it up to, but as it's going through its lifecycle journey, uh, you are constantly sort of updating and amending and adding information to that state. Uh, so you can refer back to it um, both asynchronously, just as in what's the state of this machine, what's happened to this machine, what's going on with it. Also, from the perspective of consuming those changes in downstream workflow items. So, um, you know, this machine is now successfully part of the um, blue vCenter data center construct and all of that's done and you can record that state information or machines um, configuration information on uh, the, as we refer to it the machine object and keep it up to date as it's moving through its journey um, that sort of malleable you know the, the state of a machine is constantly evolving and changing over time over its life cycle as it goes through its journey uh, and then being able to use that state in different places and have access to that state is important because you want to protect that. It's your operational jewels. So I'm kind of curious when you talk about state like that, right? Um, you know, I, I like being part of a particular cluster or part of a particular data center deployment, right? That, that state is something that's really centrally held and then the machine morphed into that state. So you talk about the way you talk about it, I'm, I'm kind of trying to track of the machine's got a state and we need to capture it versus I, in my mind, it, it, it seems kind of reverse. It seems that, you know, a cluster or, or a higher level object has a state it wants and it's going to basically morph the machines into it. Yeah, um, and, and that's an interesting uh, observation, John, because, the uh, um, you know, we started the journey with um 
churning over thousands and tens of thousands of machines to a given state as sort of a, a single machine object thing. And as we've built higher order orchestration and, and cluster construct components on top of it, um, the context is sort of the first part of the answer and being able to uh, take that existing machine state, which that machine has to be in a given state, um, has to be driven to a specific given state so it's right for the higher order cluster construct thing. Um, and then being able to operate on that machine as an independent entity. But when you bring in the, the cluster order construct thing, then we've, we've been hashing over uh, internally on our side, um, you know, do we have, um, we, we refer to, let me back step a little bit. So I, I briefly mentioned it, but the way we, we maintain that state is central, you know, central storage site or service, in this case, our, our platform. Uh, that maintains the state of each of the individual machines and what we refer to as a machine object. And that machine object is that sort of morphing, mutating, changing, uh, recording of the machine state. Um, and then so the, the next question is, um, how do we apply, um, we have this larger construct, you know, a VCF cluster or a Kubernetes cluster or, or you know, even as simple as, you know, a web server uh, cluster, right? That's behind a, a VIP and a load balancer. Those things are all one thing. They need to be one thing the same, but you may have dependencies on enough of them being up. And so that sort of becomes a cluster order construct as well. Um, do we need a separate mechanism to describe what a cluster is? And then that is used as part of the driving the machines through its journey. We do that to some degree today. Actually, we do that very much so today. We just do that a little bit more loosely coupled in sort of a, a groups of profiles that describe its final journey. Um, but we've been sort of discussing that, um, do we need a much more prescriptive, you know, more tightly defined object that is a cluster object um, that has special permissions and abilities to, to interact with the machine's object and, and driving the machine through its journey as well. Um, Greg probably has a lot more to say on that, and you know most of this is his brainchild behind all of that. Um, I'm just one of the foot soldiers in in all of this, um, so I don't know, Greg, if you wanted to um, stop cringing at the way I was describing that. No, you're doing fine. Clean up. No, no, you're doing good. I think one of the things we're beginning to realize is that while we talk about a life cycle and a control system for a machine object, that we've talked about wanting to find its state and driving a machine to that state. Um, and what we found in our kind of operational path is that it's a mix of what I want the machine to become based upon what it is. So it's not just a, I always want it to be a, you know, a Kubernetes node that often means if this is a Dell system with 12 disks and a certain set of RAID controllers and five NICs, it needs to be, that this Kubernetes node isn't, it's not enough to say Kubernetes, right? Or VMware node. And so there's implications of what the system is. So it's not just a one-off choice, but that same set of modeling allows you to attend, to drive that definition at a cluster level. So then you can use the part, we look at it in our system using the same quote, machine object model to represent the destination state for what your cluster should be. And then using the same workflow mechanics and state tracking, that allows you to then apply the same life cycle style operations to your cluster. And then you can keep changing those around. And then that's where like our infrastructure as code kind of concepts come in, where we define that process in code, as well as the ability to potentially define that state as code as well. So um, a bit more maybe nebulous than what Shane was describing, but. Yeah, no, I think, I think, yeah, just as I said, it, it's, you know, there's provisioning a machine and then there's bringing the machine into some higher level service, right? And, and it just sounded, the only thing in there, when you talk about configuring like top of Rex switches and that kind of stuff, how common is that? I mean, that sounds like a complicating piece that 
you probably want to like standardize out. Right, right. Yeah. So I guess my, the, the reason I worded my comment the way I did is we're starting and I'm not sure we're completely there yet to try and change how we think about the next level up. Right. I'm not joining a machine into the cluster. I'm building a cluster. I'm building a cluster consistently. I'm going to follow a consistent pattern for building a cluster. That means I need things that let me grab machines, that let me configure switch ports, that let me do the next level of operation that I can then orchestrate in a consistent, repeatable, trackable, versionable manner, right? So that the process gets kind of driven from the other, the other direction of I'm building a cluster. Oh, look, I have a workflow that builds a cluster. If I drive these set of parameters, sure. kind of an initial state set choice, then that can drive the rest of it. And that may be enough information, right? We're starting to consider for some of our customers a path of saying, okay, I need 12 VLANs. I need, right? Those kind of things. And then how does that come from? Do they yeah. go, right? It, it's a directional choice. And then when sure. we start, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm, yeah, I mean, I get it. So, like, we, we did that, and then the next step up to there is I need to go build a whole new pop, right? And then that's right. You know, templates for different types of pops, and I need to federate the pops together into a service, and I need to deploy at some point an application on top of those. So you're just moving up the stack, right? Well, it's, I guess in our mantra, what we're trying to do is use a consistent automation pattern mm -hmm. and a consistent versioning and scheme that lets you drive all those from top to bottom. Even when you get out of the, oh, I have a machine, now what, right? It's more of, and then given the way we've implemented some of our workflows, we drive lifecycle management into that so that you can say like, here's a cluster and I need to expand it. Expanding it means grabbing all the fun, right? That kind of stuff. But then it can reuse the build an ESXi node or update an ESXi node or rebuild an ESXi node, right? From what would you say? So, you know, Rob kind of started this with lessons learned, right? So you went to an agent approach, so that's going to scale out, right? That That's like one lesson probably learned in there. What he, he actually, Shane got me at the, you couldn't run a Go application, you had to rewrite it in Python. What are the major lessons learned? I guess it's kind of my question in terms of having gone through this. From a well, lots of levels on that <laughs> in some regards. Um, some of the levels that like are lessons or expectations is hold your vendors to API driven items. So one of the challenges we found with VMware and part of the reason a lot of our stuff is actually needed is because they're drastically inconsistent about API usage. And there's things that you need to be able to do from a security compliance configuration perspective that you can't do through their API systems at all. And so that's one of the things that we're, we've tried to embody is that everything we do is API drivable so that somebody can extend it or access it or get information about it and that kind of stuff. So that's one of the things that I've taken away, and th that applies not just for VMware, but hardware vendors all the way down, right? We're, we're in the middle of a fight with mm -hmm. Le Lenovo about some of their craziness, right? Because they can't get a consistent method for setting a BIOS parameter, and they always change it between release to release. And you're like, how is this helpful to people? Um, so that's one of the things that we've learned. I'll let others give their thoughts. I, I would offer the ISO build, although y'all might have more, more comments on the, the challenges with the ISO build process that we've seen. Um, no, don't go of, that way. Don't go to that direction. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, start well, screaming and ranting. I know. It's talk about pain. Um, one of the challenges that we've seen is that VMware um, expects then uh, customers, not even vendors, 
to build install ISOs um, and then inject things into those install ISOs. And then there's a like a Windows only process to do some of that work. Um, and so it's 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 been really I mean it's along the lines of what Greg is saying. It's where it's like there's all these things that have to fit together just right and it's incredibly fragile. Um, and we've we found it really challenging to automate around that process. Um, and I, I think there's been times when, you know, we would, you know, we would get some feedback from VMware. Hey, you should use this new API. It's in version seven. It's going to do exactly what you wanted. Um, and then when we would go back to customers, they'd be like, well, we, we're not going to be version seven only. So we need a process that works on both or the API didn't work quite the way they thought it would where it didn't work for hardware unless the hardware was also patched. And so, um, you, know, the lock, you know, the lock has, to get all the tumblers right in the lock is really, really hard. And it feels like the systems are built only with, you know, this key opens the lock in this way on this hardware and this thing. And we keep we keep having to work around that, that design approach that's, that's super, and I don't know, Sort of the reality of data center infrastructure, but it, it seems especially tricky um, with VMware. On the flip side, if you can have infinite number of tumblers and combinations, we you know, have issues on the other side of that too. Shane, did you want to talk about like bouncing to different APIs, or I'm, I don't want to put lessons learned in people's mouths, but. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, like, what could we do that would make VMware like take away a lot well, of this pain? Well, so like Greg was saying, if they had a single consistent API across their services for all the things we need, it, it would make life so much easier because we end up having to weave together a huge array of tooling to do this single lifecycle journey just for ESXi, VMware, vSphere, vCenter, vCF products, you know, out of one company. And so, you know, we have various command line tools that we interact with and drive. And anybody who's tried automating a command line tool knows how painful that journey is when the vendors will go and arbitrarily change the outputs of their tooling, which makes your automation very fragile and you have to readjust it. Greg is going through this pain right now with um, the vendors changing their, their tooling so that the name of the tool doesn't change, but the way it, way it behaves and operates changes between versions mm -hmm. and, and it causes a huge amount of grief. You know, at least if you're going to make fundamental changes like that, make it a new tool name or something, make it easier to identify and don't change the behavior of the previous operations. Um, but, you know, we go from CLI tools to interacting with the external APIs and the external APIs are different. They're either SOAP based or REST based, depending on the specific API we need to hit. And in some cases, um, I've had to use four different tool chains to talk to the APIs um, because the different tool chains don't integrate all of the capabilities of a specific API set that needs to be done. So, you know, it's it's frustrating to have to weave together so many tools, but it's also, you know, part and parcel to the journey of a software thing, you know, as it morphs over its lifetime. And an OS is just a software thing that morphs and changes. And so, you know, APIs were not a great big, huge thing in 1999 when VMware started out and driving, you know, OS automation through an API was pretty much a, a non event thing that didn't exist in anybody's brain space and I, so um, you know they've had to morph and change over time go ahead yeah i'm uh no i'm laughing because um uh, early my first startup we actually wrote and this is going to sound remarkably familiar in, in 2000 we we wrote a python based agent for esx1 oh that configured yeah actually actually in that in that iteration you actually used the agent to start VMs because there was no external API for for create VM and destroy VM. It's it, you're making me think of just how little things change over time. 
what I take so what I take away from that entire thing is is the the, the VMware ecosystem is fragile. It, it's not it's not constant in terms of reliable APIs. It changes yeah, frequently, it, it, and every one of those changes, you know, requires <clears throat> you know a one-off kind of config change to match it. Yeah, and and that's like I, I I worded my statement carefully because it's not trying to bash on VMware, but you know they have a a, a product now that spans what twenty two years, I guess. Twenty decades. And decades, yeah. And so, you know, a lot has changed in technology then. And so I, I can't fault them for having a, a patchwork of um, solutions as they've, you know, grown their product and extended and, and changed it. Um, but um, to, to Greg's point, it's one of the reasons we work really, really hard. You know, we make fundamental dramatic changes underneath the covers in our product. And you know, we just went through that actually last Friday with the release. And, but we work really, really, really hard to make the front end API, um, not change because we realize if somebody's automating our infrastructure tooling into their processes, um, we know how hard that is, um, yeah. to absorb dramatic changes in the front end that you interact with. And it's very di disruptive. Um, and it causes a lot of angst and grief. Um, and so we try hard not to, to do that, but you know, at some point we're going to do it, right? We're going to either intentionally or unintentionally, it's going to happen. Um, and, but that's just the reality of uh, software's, you know, journey over its life cycle. Um, and it's also um, why a lot of the design decisions in our platform tooling were built the way they were is we, we have to absorb and interact with a tremendous range of tooling components. Yeah. To be able to do that automation. So out of curiosity, right? The one thing you mentioned that, that caught my attention is you had to rewrite your agent from GoLang to Python because it Go mm -hmm. wasn't supported. What was up with that? <laughs> yeah, so um and, and that's a thing about sort of closed appliance vendors in general. Um we run into this a lot of times. Um we do a lot of storage platform deployments. Uh, and I think you just heard uh, Victor chuckling on the phone there, I think is my guess. Uh, no, I was on mute. Uh, but that wasn't Victor. Oh, well, I was I was attributing the chuckle to Victor because Victor has done a, a tremendous amount of the pain and suffering of dealing with the quote unquote appliances from storage vendors, which at the end of the end of the day, it's almost always Linux under the hood with some customizations that the vendor goes through to make it special make it a closed appliance thing. And ESXi is the same thing. It was originally Linux at one point in time that was turned into a closed appliance and then you know morphed from there and it's very Linux-like today. VMware will swear up and down until it's blue in the face that it's not Linux anymore. Um, whether or not you believe them or not is still a raging debate in the communities. Um, but nonetheless, um, Anybody that makes a closed appliance and tries to lock down the way something works is putting themselves into a place where they now have to maintain an enormous ecosystem of, of tool sets and tooling uh, today and in the future that they don't know about. And in this case, you know, Golang grew and evolved as a language that's you know very powerful and capable, and it's the language we chose to build everything in. And our agent was written in Golang. And our core platform is written in Golang. And so, um, you know, it gives us a lot of benefits, you know, single compiled static binary that we just drop in place in an OS and it just works. And we don't have to worry about external library dependencies and problems associated with that. But, you know, VMware has been very slow to adopt Golang. Um, you know, they've been experimenting with it internally and we've worked with some of the VMware engineers that are playing with it. Um, and they're someday promising they're going to release a Golang SDK. Um, but because they closed their appliance off, they are now um, responsible themselves for developing a Golang SDK to develop and build and compile Golang binaries. There's also a bit of a push-pull because VMware doesn't want you doing that. You're supposed to, according to their mantra and their philosophy, consume all of their external APIs. And if you're building a Golang binary that's running inside the OS, that's sort of the antithesis to their uh, design paradigm. And it's, you know, there's a struggle 
from that perspective. So they've been slow to provide external tools to compile, you know, extensions or capabilities inside the ESX iOS. And that, you know, that struggle exists prior to going as a story. Um, but we still run into you know, that with, with Python. Like they've pulled enough of exactly, the Linux yeah. stuff out of it where we can't even use WebSockets and stuff because they've removed yep. four, four parts of the, like <laughs> so the, the point what, what is their Python pieces. <laughs> right? Yeah. And Mike is our, the guy who's done the rewrite in the Python pieces. And so he's had to deal with that struggle of using the native Python and ESXi um, and the missing components that, you know, in, so in it's, the, not, the Python it's not instruction compatible with like a stock Linux binary is what I'm hearing. You have to compile on VMware. It's the VMware kind of API, the internal ABI that they use uh -huh. is part of what Linux user space used to look like 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, all, all the way down to shell, right? So <laughs> the shell I mean, is a busy box shell. It's not even a real full blown bash. Yeah, I can't so, tell you how many times every one of us have cut our fingers with the differences in that. Wow. So anything modern needs a whole lot of backporting and you flat out just can't do some of the work because a lot of the critical bits are, you know, how it works is only known to VMware. Interesting. That's why Go doesn't work because Go relies on you know vaguely modern Linux uh, uh, Linux kernel interface and VM the VMware kernel interface just flat out doesn't provide that. That that seems that that would seem like a huge adoption issue for customers. Well, well you're you're not there. supposed to do things internally yeah. like this. You're supposed to use all the external APIs and services. I mean, I, I, it's a I know, black box. Just run it. Yeah. yeah. I know that like where my wife works, they still run code. I used to work at that company 12 years ago and they still run code that I wrote 12 years ago against their <laughs> ESX servers. And I know that it's still there. I know that it works because I still talk to my boss, my old boss there. And, you know, so some of their APIs and some of their stuff is, it's very stable, you know, depending on what you're, what you're wanting to do, um, you know? And so if you're, if you're doing things the way they say to do it and you're okay with manual steps here and there and you've got like that's a pretty small shop that I used to work for. I don't even think they have a hundred physical machines anymore. Um, you know, it's it's not so bad uh, to have some somebody go manually do something as long as, you know, once it's done, you can write some script that'll run for 10, 12 years. You know, it's not that bad. But, you know, when you're dealing with what some of our customers here are doing, you know, that's not even remotely feasible. You can't even throw enough people at that problem to solve it. Interesting. It shows you my limited VMware experience. <laughs> yeah, and and I think some of these problems aren't. I mean, VMware's got more history, but a lot of you know, bootstrapping a Kubernetes cluster isn't isn't particularly different. Might be more modern Linuxy, but the the challenges that you get into are, are very similar. You know, I found bootstrapping the clusters was really I, I had no problem with that. We we bootstrapped them routinely. Um, yeah, because the whole point of what we were building is if you wanted a, a Kubernetes service, we would build and provision Kubernetes, you know, for you across a series of data centers and then interconnect them all with the networking side. Where where I found difficulty in the Kubernetes bootstrapping was actually at the networking layer and just the lack of capability. Right. So, you know, we, we perpetually ran into legacy applications that had been designed to have three network interfaces, right? Even in the latest release of Kubernetes, it only supports two now, right? And that was an improvement from one. Yeah, so how do you wedge legacy applications into a Kubernetes cluster to assume they have like a management API, a private network, and then a public network, right? So, so that part was more challenging than just bootstrapping the Kubernetes stuff. That was pretty trivial. That didn't take much. But getting the network configured around those Kubernetes, particularly intra, intra pop communication setup, um, yeah, that's still not a solved problem. All right, we are way over, we are way over time. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, we are. How about that? There we are. Fabulous. That's it. it happens. Hey, Shane, thank yeah. you. Uh, All right, everybody, guys. Thanks. I appreciate everybody's input. Shane, that you were free, free you up all of a sudden, and I appreciate the thought out responses. So, thanks. Yeah, thank you, guys. Everybody. Have a good one. Have a good one. Yeah, bye. Absolutely. Wow, we really got some dirt under our fingernails talking about VMware infrastructure and automation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, a lot of great information. If you want to talk about things like this or have your own stories to tell about building infrastructure and automation, please join us at the2030.cloud. Come to lunch and share some stories. We want to hear them. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.